0: no surprise to anybody that no one's made a bigger impression on me when it comes to preaching other than Tim Keller. Um, And a little over 20 years ago, I was profoundly affected by a sermon he did on this passage. Uh, So while most of the illustrations and the applications are my own, the sermon has been largely shaped by that message. I just think it's important to make attribution where it's due. But I want to ask you a question this morning about your relationships. What is it like to have someone try to remake you into their image. Let's imagine for a moment that you have been asked to advise a couple that have been dating for a while, things are getting serious, uh, and they're talking about marriage. And so you sit down with them while they uh, talk about their passions together. And uh, the young lady looks up and says, well, look, there are three things that are really important to me that I need you to know. First of all, I can't stand cigarette smoke. I'm allergic to it. I feel like I'm suffocating whenever I'm around it. To which the guy responds, well, okay. Okay. Uh, But I'm going to smoke. I can't live without a cigarette. But, you know, thanks for telling me about that. She says, well, something else that's kind of important to me, that I kind of like to keep my expenses low uh, so I can give my money away to uh, causes financially that I want to support. This is really important to me. To which he says, wow, that's interesting. But, you know, hey, since we're being honest here and everything, I I want you to know that I want as many homes and cars and and, and as many places as I can. And I really don't care if i got to go into debt to get them. And she says, okay, well, one last thing. I, I would like to live in sort of an underprivileged neighborhood because I want to reach out to a community of people in an effort to kind of build, build bridges for the gospel. To which he says, are you kidding me? You like, look, you can't trust those people. I would have to lock my doors. Uh, there's no way that I'm going to do that. So by the end of this little conversation, he goes, look, I'm glad we had this talk, but let's get down to business here. Will you marry me? Now, look you would advise them, I'm sure, to look and say, there's clearly some problems here. But you would also recognize that it's probable that the girl's going to break up with the guy anyway. Why? I think the reason why is is because there is a powerful discouragement that comes when you suddenly realize that the person you are partnered with is actually relating to someone other than you. I don't mean another person altogether, but a version of you that's not in accord with reality. You're in a relationship, uh, and you're either relating to the person that is, or you're relating to a person that you wish that person would be. And my point is, is there's not much that is more powerfully insulting than to be the recipient of someone who's treating you this way. I would go so far as, you're probably actually not even really in love until you decide that this person, you know, not the image of what you wish they would be, is the one that you're going to serve until death us do part. I think marriages quickly find themselves on the rocks when this realization kind of hits you. But my point this morning is, is that this is deeply offensive to be treated like that. Many of you would testify to it because deep inside of our hearts, there's a desire to be known for who we really are, not what you want me to be. I wonder how much of what we call falling in love is just us having put a wish projection onto someone else for them to be conformed to your image of what you think they should be. I mean, the truth is, if you were dating that kind of person, you would get out of that relationship. I guess this is that some of you have been through the crushing pain of divorce under just such circumstances. But look, my premise here this morning is, is this scenario gives the, us the perfect parameters to understand the story because we've been looking this semester at what it means to be the people of God. And in short, we've discovered that God is these people's great rescuer, doing everything that he needs to secure their freedom and their safety. But we've also noted the spiritual damage that's come from these years of slavery. So now we come to a watershed moment in Israel's history. Uh, An event, by their own doing, threatens to drive a deep wedge between Yahweh and his newly freed people. So therefore, it's really a powerful story for any of us who want to be fashioned into the people of God. Because the failure of God's people in this story is so severe that Yahweh actually threatens to break his promise to save them and bring him into the promised land. But at just the right time, Moses steps in with a solution. So my question is, what in the world could be so dramatic as to cause that? What was such a big deal about the golden calf? And I want to answer that in three simple ideas. Number one, the nature of the sin... Number two, the danger of the sin. And then number three, the healing of the sin. So first of all, the nature of the sin. Look, in order to get the full weight of this story, you've got to remind yourself of the context checks again that we talked about last week. Uh, People have just been given God's mind-numbingly detailed architectural blueprint for a little small worship center in the center of their camp. But of course, as we saw, the the whole thing was designed as this pattern of the whole universe. Uh, The tabernacle that the Hebrews had was a visualized Jewish cosmology. It represented the way they viewed the entire world. And contained in this pattern, embedded in the tabernacle, was Yahweh's program of recreation for the entire cosmos. Everything that God was up to in the world, this global, worldwide healing, was pictured in the tabernacle. And as if to punctuate it all, God is going to come down in a dramatic manifestation of his visible presence in their midst. He's going to come down in fire and smoke and and, and an ear-piercing noise. And so he does so. And when he does so, the people flinch. And instead of having him come down to them, they send Moses up to Mount Sinai to meet the God because they are afraid. But you know what happens? He's up there for a while, which leads us right into verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Okay, look, the very first point I want to make from this is the insanity of all of this. I mean, these people have turned on Moses time and time again, who has up until that time been a source of perfect guidance an awe-inspiring power in their lives. But now, you know, they want him, they want him replaced. Why? Because he's late. He's tardy. Now look, you, you are paying attention if after this study through Exodus, you've noticed how petty these people really are. How petty they are. Because all of this power, all these miracles, all that rejoicing in God, and suddenly they're ready to chuck him. Why? Because Moses is late on the mountain. You would be right to think to yourself, I think these people are crazy. And that's correct. They are not in their right minds. Because what is in their minds is something that is deeply and powerfully insulting to Yahweh. Because the Jews decide that they're going to directly contradict the very pattern that God has just shown them in the tabernacle with some, um, let's call it worship creativity. They're like, you know, all this tabernacle talk, God, that's fine and good, but... It sure looks like a lot of work. Uh, And frankly, missing in the centerpiece of it is an important piece of furniture. You know, you got the Ark of the Covenant, which is your footstool, you said, but there's no image above it like the rest of the nations. All of this detail, all this intricacy is unceremoniously set aside for a simpler way, a more convenient way, and as it turns out, one that's probably a little more palatable to their pagan neighbors but we find out that there scarcely could have been a way for them to be more insulting to Yahweh than what they did. And look, some of you I think might have just missed what I said because I think it really is the key to understanding the meaning of this passage. Don't make the mistake that the Jews are worshiping the calf itself as an object. It's always struck me as strange as a child, how could you form and cast, you know, sort of this image and sort of think it's a god? And that very well may have happened, but That's not what happened here because of what it says in verse 5. Look at it more carefully. When Aaron stands up in front of the people, he says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, is not that the Jews were guilty of replacing God with the golden calf. They wanted the golden calf as a better way to worship God. They wanted something more convenient, something more impressive to the nations around them. But what they quickly discover is they were trying to make Yahweh into their image. The sin of the Hebrews was worshiping the true God in a false manner. That's what's so offensive. And and, and what I tried to open with this morning is, it would be just as offensive to you if someone treated you that way. This is one of the reasons why, when you see the golden calf, you realize these people are saying, "You know, God, I, I know that you've told me all along what you're all about, but I'd like to think of you as strong and uh, powerful, you know, like a like a, a young bull calf." What's interesting is is Yahweh actually is strong and powerful, but we get here to the problem of why the Bible has a problem with images of the deity. Uh, because whenever you create some image of, of, the, of God, it's always going to conceal just as much as it reveals. Sure, God is powerful and strong, just like a calf. But what about his mercy? What about his compassion? It's as if God is saying in the tabernacle, hey, if it's okay, would you let me be in control of my own self-revelation? <laughs> and maybe avoid some of your creativity in the process? So God is actually deeply and profoundly offended at this. Because the tabernacle wasn't sort of a, the work of a master architect putting together a lovely worship center so people could come and worship. But it's a deeply profound manifestation about who he is, his finalities. The Jews haven't broken some obscure worship principle. They've told God they really don't care what he stands for. We want to think of you God as this way. They'd rather relate to him as a wish projection rather than for what he really is. And my point is this, nothing could have been more insulting to Yahweh than this. That's the nature of the sin. This brings me to the second point, which ought to be more aware and more familiar to you now. And that is the danger of the sin, because there's really no way to understate this. This is the worst sin in the Bible right here. You know, someone once said God made man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since by making him into our image. Like even, even a cursory study of the Old Testament prophets, you're going to find that this sin of calf making like, continued to plague these people. Uh, it'd be great to do a little survey of some of those Old Testament uh, 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 history of the Jews, especially when the monarchy came on and the Jewish kings, because there's this repeated sin uh, that king after king uh, that ruled in Israel was guilty of uh, um, that was known as the sin of Jeroboam. Now, what in the world is the sin of Jeroboam? Well, you find out in 1 Kings chapter 14, where a prophet by the name of Ahijah comes and confronts a king, whose name was Jeroboam, with these words. He says, but you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. That's an interesting way to say that, isn't it? So that's Jeroboam's sin. The sin of Jeroboam, is the making of golden calves. And it was a practice that started very early on in his reign. You know, when the Jewish kingdom was divided between a northern and a southern kingdom, Jeroboam was the one who was in control of the northern part. And one of the first things he did was forbid people to go down into Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to be able to make pilgrimage to, to worship. And in First Kings 12 he says this, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? He's quoting Aaron from Exodus 32, verse 4. And here's the thing. This this calf-making problem, this sin of Jeroboam, it persisted in the life of the Jews. Do a little read-through through through the history of the Old Testament uh, history books, and you'll find that again and again these people committed this sin of Jeroboam. What's the point the Bible's making? I think the point is, is that idolatry was the chief sin of the Jewish people. It was always that way. There was nothing they could have done that was more dangerous to them becoming the people of God than to make idols of Yahweh, to get creative in worshiping him, to cast him in their image. And look, I think it's only if you feel the offensiveness of the sin that you kind of understand Why God meets it with the harshest judgment. Chapter 33, verse 3 says, Look, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Fine, but I'm not going with you. Lest I consume you on the way, you stiff-necked people. Can't you hear the heartache in Yahweh's voice? It's like saying, look, if that's the kind of God you want, fine. Then go and have all of the benefits of knowing me, but you won't have me. Hmm. Keller, in a sermon on this, makes the point that it's almost as if Yahweh is offering these people the exact sort of religion that people want today. They want the benefits of knowing God. Uh, they, They want the sense that, like, the universe is for me, that I've got a place to go when I die. That maybe I have the benefits of living a good life. But it's devoid of one thing, the presence and the companionship of God one of the more sobering tragedies of kind of living on the periphery of God's purposes is that sometimes God's people get just that. They live within reach of the benefits of knowing God, but they don't want him. He might mess things up too much. Maybe he'll ask something of me that costs me. <laughs> this is the Bible is saying, you know, spoken like a true insane asylum patient. Look, please don't miss this giant principle from the Exodus. God is not interested in relating to his people on the basis of the rules. He first and foremost wants you. And we follow the path of the golden calf every time we beg for a religion of convenience that never asked me to do anything that makes me uncomfortable, for a religion of accommodation where my Christianity distinguishes me not at all from my neighbor's. And then finally, therefore, of impotence where it doesn't make a dent in my life, or anybody else for that matter. And look, for this reason, it's jarring and sobering to apply this lesson to our lives when we realize, have I taken God up on his offer for just that kind of religion? Have I treaded on him so casually that I have been sent into the promised land? That I'm enjoying the benefits of an easy life, of of a prosperous family. And yet I'm devoid of genuine interaction with God. My life is near him, but my heart, where my joys and my allegiances and my attentions and my comforts, it's far from him. Look, in the New Testament, Jesus describes this condition in a couple of places. The first one is in the famously misnamed, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know, it really should be the parable of the older brother. Because when the younger, rebellious brother comes home, the father's so happy, throws this huge party for him. But the older brother, he ain't going to join that party. And so what happens is the father comes out and says to him, basically, Look, everything I have is yours, and I'm always with you. Now, will you come into the party or not? And of course, the story ends without an answer. Why? Because Jesus wants the Pharisees to grapple with that question Are you coming in or are you not? Will you join the celebration? Kind of gives us a parameter to understand the very difficult Matthew seven twenty one, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is that will? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you who are workers of lawlessness. Notice that language there. I never knew you. That doesn't mean he wasn't aware of you. He says there was no intimacy between us. There's no conversation. There's no no humility, no repentance. You've offered me me formality, (laughs) vainly thinking that you can construct an image of me that fits your desires and your construction. It's almost as if in the end, Jesus is saying that God's simply going to tell you that, that he wants to break up. Because he was interested in not dating you, but in marriage. But just like it's destructive to your own marriages, it can't be on the basis of your selfish terms. So the danger of the sin is that it sort of puts us in a place of a relationship to God that's false. So the nature of sin, the danger of the sin, thirdly and finally, the the healing of the sin. Look, in chapter 33, that 12 and following, you see this passage screaming to us that the only way in which you're going to heal this kind of offensiveness is by a go-between. You know, Moses says something really eye-popping there in chapter 32, verse 32. Because he looks at Yahweh and says, hey, blot me out of your book. You know, the book that you've written. You realize Moses is asking to be condemned himself on behalf of his people. A, that's amazing. B, does that sound familiar? He's being Jesus at that point. Throughout the book of Exodus, Moses has been a mediator for the people, and boy, they never have needed him anymore. Look at what he says there in verse 13. It's the very heart of his appeal is that first word, remember. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Notice what Moses is appealing to is God's own integrity on behalf of his people, which I find interesting because it's it's interesting to contrast with what he's not appealing to God for. He's not appealing to God on the basis of his pity. Why? Because there's a greater Moses that's yet to come. Hebrews, I think, is a wonderful guide here. In chapter 3 of that great book, you get this amazing contrast. Listen to this. The writer says, "'Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, "'consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, "'who was faithful to him who appointed him, "'just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. "'For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses.' As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now listen to 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See the contrast he's making there? Moses was just the builder of the house, but Jesus is the son of the house. Jesus comes to occupy what Moses was building. So Jesus comes as our intercessor, not not to cajole God. He's not sort of with his hands crossed begging pretty pleased for his people's salvation, but he's appealing to God on the basis of the certainty of his promises. I think, by the way, this really helps us kind of understand what I would say uh, for those of us who embrace a doctrine of God's sovereignty, Uh, and his control over everything, Um, it helps us understand this this very human portrayal of God in chapter 32, verse 14. Because there it says that God was ready to wipe the Hebrews out. But the verse says there that he relented. Hmm. God changed his mind, and to us that sounds very human of him, or at least not very sovereign in that regard. But look, don't miss this, because the drama in God's decision is cast just so to show the fact that there was real emotion that was at stake here in this transaction. Like this dialogue between God and Moses is, as it were, inviting the reader into the real actual experience that God has of grief and pain of his people's rebellion. Look, whatever you can say about a Christian's relationship to God, it cannot be a lifeless, cold contract. Rather, it's a warm, loving relationship. And what that means is there's a risk of him getting hurt. And you just got a picture of that in that passage. But of course, at the same time, this interaction shows the limitations of Moses, doesn't it? I mean, look, the volatility of, God, of God's reaction suggests that there even needs to be something better than Moses. And of course, Jesus was the fulfillment of that hope. How? We'll come back to that in just a second. Before we finish here, I, don't want, I want to try to throw out a quick little three-handful... Uh, three ideas to to apply this passage to us, of application that we should walk away with. The first one is this. I don't know a better way to put this. The Bible thinks that you are insane. That's application number one. Uh, We are supposed to see ourselves in these passages. And if if you are a little bit shocked at the uh, uh, reality-bending pettiness of these Israelites, then maybe we should start to ask the question, Am I seeing the world as it really is? Like these stories are trying to get us to question my own version of what is real. And perhaps the world that we think that we know is not the world that is. What is the world that is? Can it only be from God's perspective? And do I only know that from his word? Have I considered that? Second point of application. Not only are you insane, but you're not going to get over it very quickly. <laughs> The repetition of this sin throughout the life of the Old Testament suggests that like, like quick fixes are just not a part of the Christian life. There's lots of people who say, Oh, I never struggled with that sin ever since that moment, and, and more on you, but I don't think it's the norm. For the most part, look, for the most part, I think that struggle is supposed to get us to a place where we would at least consider that maybe the problems of my life would be enormously helped by a posture that began by assuming, you know what, maybe I'm the crazy one here. How many of my problems would dissolve with, with, with my spouse, with my children, with my coworker, with my boss, if my relationships had the ring of humility to them? I wonder. Third point of application is this, though. In what ways are you with the Lord? Look, I don't want to miss the big picture here because I don't think it's going too far to say that like the whole tectonic motion of the Old Testament is moving towards us being with the Lord. <clears throat> and so my question is, in what ways does that manifest itself in your life? Maybe perhaps in a, in a regular exposure to God's Word. Uh, maybe it happens in an ongoing posture of prayer. Or maybe that there's just a place in your imagination that you've carved out where you and the Lord like actually meet in a real con- a communication and I realize that to a lot of our ears, that admonition sounds like you're just kind of getting a, hey, do better at your spiritual disciplines. But if you think that, you miss the point. <laughs> because I'm wanting you to ask the question, if it's possible, that one of the reasons why to ask those things seems so burdensome to us is because we've detached those activities from being with the Lord. Those things are means to that end of being with Him, not the other way around. Maybe I'm trying to manufacture this religion where that Yahweh suggests to Moses, where I've got the forms but no relationship. And it really helps people suffer breakdown, doesn't it? <clears throat> so I was looking for, for weeks for a nice little pithy closing illustration until it occurred to me a few weeks ago that I actually had one for my own life. Um, again, in a former life, I was on campus for 25 years talking, talking to your children. I don't mean y'all's individual children, but the people that came up through college and were either embracing their parents' values or not. And for those that were not, it was really shocking. It's a shockingly common statistic that over and over again, they would look and say that when they dealt with their parents, they felt like they were dealing and interacting with a set of rules and not their parents as if they were real people. You know, what they wanted was, is they wanted friendship as much as they wanted your guidance and oversight. wonder where they got that instinct. Look, measure how much time that you spend trying to keep your children in line versus with your efforts to understand them, to connect with them, to hear about them. Because I'm going to bet you that's going to tell you a lot about how they'll do later on. Look, and I want you to let that sink into your heart. Like, what if God's harsh condemnation at the golden calf incident and the many calves to follow was simply his way of trying to protect the integrity of the kind of relationship that he wanted. And this explosion of emotion that he has is the explosion of a lover. Because in demanding that we accommodate our relationship to him on the basis of the truths in his character, has not he done and extended the same thing to us? Hasn't he done the same thing to us? Because you'd be right to ask, why is God asking me to conform to the finalities in his character? Will he ever do that for me? Answer, yes. He already did it. (laughs) 2,000 years ago. We call it Christmas. Because at that moment, God comes down and says, I'm not going to come to you in fire and fear in a way that you can't handle. So when the time is right, a little baby gets born into poverty in ancient Palestine. And the event is so sublime and so profound that the angels can't keep from bursting forth into song to celebrate it. So what that means is there's an invitation before you this morning of two religions. On the one hand, you have a religion that maybe is full of guidance, maybe wisdom for your life, a little ancient chicken soup for the soul. On the other hand, it's the living God, a loving Father, Willing to give anything for his children to relate to him for who he really is. Which one do you choose? Let's pray. And Father, in whatever way we know how, we, we want to choose you, but we are encrusted, Father, with the fog, the insanity even, that comes from having set up so many other false lords, so many other modes of creativity about the way in which we should relate to you. Father, we've allowed our own engineered thoughts. We've not trusted in what your word has said. Father, we've got plenty of golden calves in our hearts. So we ask that you would relieve us of it by showing us the mediator, by showing us the only true image of the one true God that came to us, the great icon of God in Jesus. Because as we see him and as we know him, that's where you save, that's where you change, that's where we are transformed. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.